Today we're going to read in John chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 19 to verse 22. And if you're reading from your pew Bibles, you can find it on page 906. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Clear eyes, full hearts. Anybody know? Say it out loud. Okay, there's like one up here. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose is the next line. Nobody knows me and Dalton are together in this, I guess. Uh, it's the iconic phrase that Eric Taylor, Coach Eric Taylor, and the Dillon Panthers would say each Friday night before their football game. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Um, I got to live out all of the on-field aspects of that TV show, Friday Night Lights, when I played high school football. Not the off-field stuff, just so we're all clear. If you've seen that show, just, just the on-field stuff. And I remember, I do remember more than once being faced with a very specific problem when I was in the huddle with my teammates out on the field. Um, our team was huddled up getting ready to hear the next play that coach had called for us to run out on the field. And normally the way that we found out what the next play was going to be is uh, that we had like a rotation of wide receivers uh, that would go in and out on each play. After a play, one wide receiver from the field would go to the sideline to get the next play for the team, while the other came out to the huddle with the next play for, for the team. And that rotation sort of continued throughout the game. But the problem arose when one of these guys would come out to the huddle, and I kid you not, in like the two seconds that it took for him to get from sideline to huddle, he had forgotten the play that coach had called. I don't know what it was, like the brightness of the lights, uh, the pressure of the crowd, the intensity of the moment. I don't know what it was, but many, many, many times we're staring blankly at each other because we don't know the play that coach has called. Um, sometimes they forgot, but there was also another reason that we would not get the play in the huddle. Sometimes there were two receivers standing next to coach on the sideline. And the, both of the receivers were supposed to come in for the next play in the game. And then as coach sort of articulated the play out loud, they'd both run out to the huddle, but they'd each assume that the other guy had heard the play, and neither of them would have the play to deliver to the huddle. Again, in either case, 11 teenagers ignorantly staring at one another. Uh, often we would call an audible, what's called an audible, just to play on our own in the last second. And often for a, uh, a net gain of exactly zero yards, it turns out coach knew what he was doing when he was calling the plays that he was, and, and we didn't. But these guys were sent out with an important message from the leader of our team, from our coach. And there were one of two points of failure routinely. They forgot coach's message in the huddle, or they assumed someone else was delivering coach's message to the huddle. They forgot it, or they assumed somebody else was taking care of it. And why does this matter? Why did it matter that we didn't know the play in the huddle? What is the big deal with the huddle? 
Well, the purpose of that huddle is never just to stay huddled up, right? But to break up and to scatter out to our positions, to run the play, to score points, to win the game. It was more than just a gathering of players, that huddle. It was where we received marching orders, where the right play was delivered so that if you were a lineman, you knew which direction to block. If you were a running back, you knew which direction to run. If you were a wide receiver, you knew which route to follow. If you were a quarterback, you knew which direction to throw. Without the play, we could not adequately break the huddle and scatter out to the field to our, our different places. The huddle was more than just a gathering of large men in tight pants and pads. The reason for our gathered huddle was to send us out with scattered purpose. If all we'd ever done was huddle, there would have been no game, just penalty after penalty after penalty. No points and no purpose for any of that if we would have just stayed in our huddle. In much the same way today, I want to persuade us that Trinity's purpose is much bigger than being a crowd of gathered churchgoers. We are a community of scattered sent ones. We're more than just a, a huddle of churchgoers, but a community of scattered sent ones. A football team huddles for the purpose of scattering. A church does the same. We've huddled up today to hear some teaching, but it's for the purpose of scattering. Last week, Justin said something like this. If we want to be together for good, we need to gather together. The phrase together for good, which is what this short little series is centered on, it has a double meaning. You probably picked up on that. It can mean like together for good. We are together forever, always and forever. And it can mean together for a good purpose, together for good like for forever, and then together for a good purpose. Last week, Justin's point was kind of like that the church, uh, the church that stays together gathers together. If we're going to be together for good, we've got to get together. But this week, we're talking about the other meaning of that phrase, together for good. If we want to be together for good, we need to scatter to do good. If we want to be any of any good in our communities, in our city, in our world, we need to scatter to do good. Like a football huddle, we, scatter for the pur we gather for the purpose of scattering. A lot of you have asked what my shirt says today. I don't always make this kind of wardrobe choice, so it's intrigued you a little bit. And I've only showed it to one person. He was a guest, so I didn't feel like I could say no. Okay, what do your shirts say? I'm not going to tell you. Um, so I, I, I chose my wardrobe on purpose today. And it says, well, you can probably read it. It says, Jesus is bigger than Sundays. Okay, Jesus is bigger than Sundays. Now listen, let's not get this twisted this morning. Jesus is surely not less than Sundays, so let us not minimize this gathering, this huddle, every single week. We need this huddle. If you're not persuaded of that, go back to last week's sermon from Justin and listen to that. Sundays are essential, but they are not sufficient. Jesus still is bigger than Sundays, though. If all we ever do is gather up together once a week, we have missed out on a transcendent purpose and an amazing adventure with Jesus. We, if all we ever do, excuse me, we become like sponges if all we ever do is huddle up. We become like sponges, uh, full of beautiful but ultimately useless information that never spills out of us or is squeezed out of us to do anything good for anyone in our lives. 
So if the whole of our Christian life is summed up in this hour and a half together on Sundays and maybe a couple of hours of community group throughout the week, we can be sure that we have become a church just for ourselves. But we are more than a huddle, Trinity. We gather for the purpose of scattering. Today, unlike the wide receivers on my high school football team, we're going to talk about a message that is too important to forget. And it's a story that you can't assume someone else is hearing and is going to tell. It's each of our responsibilities. If you forget to tell it or assume that someone else is telling it, like down the road from you, it may never get told. And too much is at stake with our marching orders. So here's today's big idea, an encapsulation of the text that is hopefully portable that you can take with you. We are more than holy huddlers. We are scattering sent ones. We are more than holy huddlers. We are scattering sent ones. If we want to be together for good, in the sense that we are truly a force for good in our communities, we must remember this. We are more than holy huddlers. We are scattering sent ones. So as we walk into our text this morning, let's remember that we are plopping right down in the middle of a story. We're more like the end of a story, the end of the gospel, the good news story of Jesus. So the story in our text uh, that Melanie just read for us, it, occur- it occurs on a Sunday night, the same Sunday that Jesus had just rose from the dead. And of course, the, the world did not know that Jesus had rose from the dead yet. Only a precious few had been let in on this secret. But word is dispersing quickly that the body is gone. And some crazy stuff has been happening all around town. And so because they were Jesus' closest confidants, I think the disciples were afraid that they were going to be looped in on the punishment or the treatment that Jesus had just received. They were his nearest friends and closest confidants. And so they probably feared being jailed, maybe feared being flogged, or even being put to death just like Jesus had just been. And so they hide themselves away in a locked room. And they talk about what to do next. Guys, like, what are we going to do? The authorities are probably coming at us. Are we supposed to run? Are we supposed to hide? So you can imagine, like, the hushed tones. They don't want to be heard by the people outside. Hushed tones. Anxiety levels are escalating. Very anxious. And then there's a sudden stoppage of conversation. Suddenly, despite the locked doors, Jesus is just there somehow, to speak into the desperation of this beleaguered, bewildered group of disciples in this room. And Jesus offers three things in the quiet of that moment that every person ever is desperate for. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're desperate for these three things. Jesus offers peace, he offers power, and he offers purpose. Peace, power, and purpose. We wake up every day wanting to find peace in our story. You woke up this morning, and whether or not you thought this explicitly, you wanted peace. We want peace with whatever tribe we're trying to fit into, right? Be it political or a group of people that you work out with, CrossFit, or I don't know, whatever you're trying to fit in with, whatever group you're with, you want peace with them. We want peace in our homes. We want peace in our politics. We want peace in our inbox. We want peace in our church. Why? Because we've experienced the opposite of peace, all of us. What is the opposite of peace? Conflict. We hate the way conflict makes us feel. We, we hate that feeling of being out of sync with someone that we love or respect and want relationship with. So we long for peace. But then Jesus doesn't just offer peace, he offers power. 
specifically the power of the Holy Spirit, the most powerful being on earth. Uh, We all want the power to control our circumstances, don't we? Why? Because we've experienced the devastation that weakness can bring. All of us know what our weakness contributes to. Bodies weakened by cancer. Witnessed, witness weakened by fear. Sin multiplied by weakness and flaws. The opposite of weakness is power, and we all want more of it. Then he offers purpose. This is the defining question of everyone's life. Whether or not you are religious this morning, you have, you have a question in your life. You are, you are haunted by this question in the darkest moments of your life. I guarantee it. What am I even doing with my life? Why am I here on this earth? What is my purpose? Why is it so haunting to consider that question when we really take a second and take a beat to think about it? Because aimlessness in life leads to emptiness and depression. If you can't answer the question, what am I here for? I'm betting that you feel empty today, aimless, purposeless, good for nothing. In these few short verses, Jesus is answering life's three biggest questions. Where to find peace, where to find power, and where to find purpose. So as we are gathered up in our holy huddle this morning to hear the play from our heavenly coach, let's find out what he wants. Let's find out where we're supposed to go and what we're supposed to do. There in verse 21, we get the main command from coach. All right, here's the play. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, as the Father has sent me, even so, in the same way, I am sending you. We aren't just holy huddlers. We're sent ones. So number one, we are sent by Jesus in the peace of Jesus. We are sent by Jesus in the peace of Jesus. So in probably their most confusing, anxious hour, these disciples, Jesus steps in with authority. He steps in with grace. And he says to his friends, hey, peace. Be be at peace. It's okay. Jesus is summing up the whole purpose for his life on the earth, the purpose in this world. He is making peace between God and man. He's stepping in between these two parties and offering peace. And he says, peace be with you guys. And this isn't some thin, like, hippie version of peace, like, peace, bruh. It's not that kind of peace. We're talking about a rich, thick peace that grants us reconciliation with the Father by means of the blood of the Son. And it's a peace that you can't find anywhere else. You got to remember the disciples, the last time they saw Jesus, his dead, bloodied, bruised, unrecognizable body is being pulled down from a rugged cross. They weren't taking a victory lap at this point. They were depressed, faithless. And surely they were wondering, like we said earlier, that because of their affiliation with Jesus, if they were next on the hit list, are we next to go? Are my kids going to perish because of my relationship with this guy? The authorities had already nailed Jesus but we're his followers next. So that's why they are huddled up in this obscure room, fearing for their lives and for their families' lives. So I think the when of when Jesus steps in to offer this peace is really powerful and meaningful here. They are despondent, they are faithless, they are fearful, and Jesus offers peace right then, at that moment of peak angst. He doesn't correct them, right now. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't wait for them to go out and do great things for him. 
He speaks peace over them when there's nothing noble about them. This tells us something amazing about grace and peace. The peace that Jesus offers to us is completely independent of our earning power. We get peaced without the grind. We usually deceive ourselves, at least I do. We deceive ourselves into thinking that peace is just around the corner. It's just around the corner of us performing a little bit better for Jesus so we feel a little bit better about ourselves. I don't know about you, but I thought by this time in my life I'd be a little bit further along. And I keep thinking I'm going to turn the corner and that peace is going to come and I'm going to feel good about the way I'm operating as a Christian. We think that peace is just around the corner because uh, we're going to figure out how to say no to that besetting sin that keeps getting us. We think that peace is coming when we move up the next rung on the pay scale at work. But church, listen to this from Psalm 147. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs or the ability or the strength of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. You might be an anxious mess this morning like the disciples, but if you fear God and if you hope in his love, you are a loved daughter of the king. You might be a hot mess walking into this place this morning. But if you fear God and you hope in his love, you are a loved son of the king. He delights in you. God delights in you this morning. You are loved. He's made, Jesus has made peace with God your judge by the blood of his death and by the power of his victorious resurrection. And he offers this love and peace when they are huddled up and they're doing nothing and practically good for nothing. They're trying to figure out how to run. But in just a few weeks' time, these disciples, they'd break that huddle and they would scatter to the masses and the result was nothing short of miraculous when that huddle broke. These fearful but loved disciples lit the world on fire because the legend was true. Jesus really rose to make peace between God and man. These fearful, anxious men and women in just a few weeks' time were transformed into being a group of weak, useless, dispirited followers into the courageous core of the early first century church. Fearful, betraying Peter, was violently crucified upside down for following Christ. Legend has it that not many weeks after this, skeptical, doubting Thomas was imprisoned and flogged for boldly proclaiming to a risen Christ. These are the actions of people who have been radically transformed by what they have seen. Something absolutely life-changing, a dead man walking. Listen to the way the Christian impact was experienced by the unbelieving world back in Acts 17. Now they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men turned the world upside down. Oh man, do I want that to be true of me. How amazing would that be true of our, if that were to be true of our church. Trinity has turned Abington upside down. 
A church who turns the world upside down because they can't get over the peace that their Christ has granted to them, has earned for them. But before all that, before they accomplished all that and did all that, Jesus steps in and said, hey, there's nothing to fear, guys. Peace. Be at peace. Can you just sit with that peace this morning? Can you sit with it? I have the hardest time just sitting and thinking that God is happy with me. Do you? You are loved. If you are a Christian, the biggest problem that you will face today and every day has already been solved. There is peace between you and your maker. God is not exasperated by you. Because he sees Jesus in your place, he's pleased with you. It's going to be okay. There is peace between you and your judge. He has already rendered his sentence on you, and he is not waiting for you to perform or earn his peace. He gives it before they perform, and the same with us. Jesus stands there in the storm of your life with you, the storm of your life with you right now. He himself is dripping wet from the, from the pouring rain in your storm. He's shivering from the cold right there with you. And he says, peace, peace be with you, because I am with you. You know, technically, the New Testament church was not officially launched uh, until a few weeks from this uh, text that we're in right now, a few weeks later at Pentecost. But there's a sense in which this was the very first Sunday gathering of a church, right? And Jesus didn't want them to stay there huddled up, worshiping and praying and caring for one another, which is great. We should be a church for ourselves. We should not be a church just for ourselves. He wanted them to go with his peace. What happens when God's people huddle up on Sundays in Jesus' name? They're reminded that death has no hold on them because our Messiah destroyed it. And we walk in that reality and in that truth. And in light of that victory, we are called to live out of that victory in the peace that Jesus won for us at the cross. And so take a look at how Jesus equips the disciples here in verse 20 to go. In verse 20, he shows them physical evidence of his care for them. He shows them his scars, his hands, his side, the wounds that he bore from just a few days prior. So picture this in your mind's eye. Go there to that room. Sit there around that table. Feel the terrible anxiety that is uh, cloaking your life in that moment. Your spouse's life is in the balance. Your kids' lives are on the line. You and your people and the people you love most are all at risk because of your association with this man that's walking into the room. And then taste the wonder, though, of the awe and the excitement and the mind-blowingness that must have happened in that moment. What feelings must have washed over them when Jesus was suddenly there and you're like, what? <laughs> like, what? I don't understand what's happening right now. This man, we just saw him bloodied and bruised, laid in a tomb, and he's standing here with us. He's not dead. And imagine what the feelings of the implications of that reality would be washing over them in that moment. Wait, wait, wait. If this guy has power over death, if he can beat death, what does his power over death mean for me as I face my own death? We don't find Jesus merely saying or pronouncing peace to these men. He demonstrates it. He's like, look at this. I earned the peace for you between you and the Father. Look at this. 
tangible marks of my love for you, my peace-providing sacrifice. Look at this. It's physical evidence that I care for you. What's the point? Why does Jesus go to the trouble of showing them the scars? Jesus proof of his love for them, Jesus' proof of his peace toward them was physical. It was like you could touch it. Without the scars, there would have been no real proof that Jesus really was who he said he was. But because you could see it, you could touch it, it was tangible, there was real peace won at the cross. He didn't just pronounce peace, he earned peace. We, similarly, cannot just pronounce peace, you know, be warmed and filled and go on our own way. We can't just say that we have a message of peace for our world. We must show them the physical evidence of our love for them. As the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. And of course, we're not going to get up and hang from a cross. But I wonder, do we have any scars to show for the way that we are pursuing the world? We don't huddle just to huddle. We gather to scatter. Do we have any proof that as Jesus was sent, so are we? Well, this leads us to the second thing we see in our text today. We are sent by Jesus with the same purpose as Jesus. We're sent by Jesus with the same purpose as Jesus. Again, you can see verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you in the same way. Same purpose. What does that mean? Well, what did the Father send the Son to do? That's a pretty complex question. We could probably talk for a long time about that, but I think it could be, a, be boiled down to at least a few things. First, Jesus was sent to glorify the Father, and so are you. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John 12, Jesus was also sent to preach the gospel. And so are you. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. As the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. Third, Jesus was sent to die, dine with and befriend sinners. And so are you. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's next? Jesus was sent to help the marginalized. And so are you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let's just, let's, let's throw that whole list up here again so you can see them all at once. Jesus was sent to glorify the Father, and so are you. Jesus was sent to preach the gospel, and so are you. Jesus was sent to befriend sinners and dine with them, and so are you. Jesus was sent to help the marginalized, and so are you. Which one of these are you doing right now in your life? Or are we stuck in the rut of our holy huddle, showing up on Sundays, but never scattering to run the play? Jesus is bigger than Sundays, church. He's our coach, and this is our playbook. Right here, it's a big playbook, a lot to memorize. If you need help sorting through where to go or what to do, I know it can be daunting, it can be overwhelming, I get that, but let's talk. I would love to speak with you about that. We have opportunities for prison ministry, for single moms ministry, for orphan ministry, for food bank ministry, for overseas mission. I was hanging out with one of our Trinity folks this past week who's been on the front lines of the anti-trafficking ministry in Philly and who's preached the gospel to strung out drug addicts. 
Listen, none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. None of us can do everything. So, you know, like I tell my kids when they have tons of homework, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. We each take a bite at this thing, each taking a bite. We can't do everything, but all of us can do something. We've been sent to act and love and live like Jesus did, and his scars, uh, our scars, ought to become the proof that we're actually not just a church for ourselves. And this right here, this daunting mission that we've been given is why I'm so thankful for Jesus' perfect timing here of his pronouncement of peace. I keep drawing your attention to peace this morning uh, because this is where I particularly feel the need of the risen, living Jesus most often, fear. I fear that this mission is, is too much and too big for us and that we won't even start. Sometimes I fear that I won't be enough for my family. Sometimes I fear that I won't be enough for you as the church or that some sin or flaw of mine will cause this church to be less than it should be or less than it could be. I fear that a lot. I fear that my children won't grow up to follow Jesus. I fear that when trial comes, I'll walk away from Jesus rather than walk to Jesus. I fear that the mission will go undone in Abington. But remember when Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes to them when they're afraid. I gotta be honest, this list right here intimidates me. It makes me afraid. Being sent with the same purpose as Jesus is daunting. But Jesus comes to us when we cry out to him in our fear and he helps us by his spirit. He breathes on them in the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit indwells them. You ever heard of a breath prayer before? It's like a prayer you can just say in a single breath. It's something like this, Jesus help. Is it? Jesus help. It's like 2023's version of Psalm 56.3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Jesus, I know that I should help meet this need. Help. Jesus, I know I should respond with grace and love to this person that's really difficult. Help. Jesus, I know I should engage my neighbor in conversation right now rather than going into the house. Help. Jesus, I know I should get my hands dirty with that marginalized people group. Please help. And as the Father has sent Jesus, he sends us. I don't know about you, but that list makes me afraid. But Jesus says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Put your trust in me. Listen, church, our lives can actually matter in this life and in the next, particularly as we learn to be a church not just for ourselves. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, the late Tim Keller makes reference to J.R.R. Tolkien's story. It's a short story called A Leaf by Niggle. It's a story about a painter that is inspired to paint a great tree, but he keeps getting interrupted to help his neighbors and only ever finishes painting a single leaf. And before he has a chance to finish his painting, he dies. When he gets to heaven, he is assured by the people in heaven that his leaf was not a waste because, the quote is, there really is a tree. There really is a tree that his leaf belongs to. And even if he didn't paint the whole tree, there still really is a tree. 
Here's what Keller writes to draw out the meaning of this story, Leaf by Niggle. But really, everyone is a niggle. Everyone imagines accomplishing things, and everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than be forgotten, and everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. uh, If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is a God. If there is a God, there is a future healed world that he will bring about, and your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will only be partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, the whole tree that you seek, the beauty, the harmony, the justice, the comfort, the joy, and community, it will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you get only a leaf or two out in this life. I guess what I want to know of us, though, this morning is this. Are we even breaking the huddle to paint any leaves? Don't let the incomprehensible burden of our mission crush you. You can't do everything, but you can do something. Paint a leaf. Paint a leaf. There really is a tree, and your life really does matter. Don't be content with this holy huddle. Scatter. Paint a missional leaf in your corner of the world and just see what God will do with the beauty of that tree. One day, we will all enjoy the sight of that tree together as we see the beauty that Jesus has stitched together with all of our meager efforts. But make the meager efforts. Paint a leaf as a sent one and not merely a holy huddler. Well, we've been shown what to do. Begin the playbook, go into the world with the peace of Christ, and we've seen how that could look. Let's close today with how to live this life. Third, we are sent by Jesus with the power of Jesus. The text says, and when he had said this, he breathed out on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is sending us as he has been sent, and he's telling us how to do what he did. He says, receive the Spirit just as I have. Receive this power just as I have. Have you ever wondered how Jesus was able to do all the crazy stuff that he did? You say, yeah, bro, he was God. <laughs> that's how. And yes, that, that's true. He was God and he is God. And that was certainly critical in making possible all the glorious things that he did. But the Bible makes clear that his being God wasn't the only reason or the only explanation for his ability to do these things. The Bible tells us why Jesus, who took on the frailty of flesh like you and me, why Jesus was able to do such wonderful things. In Luke 4, Jesus explains it. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's how Jesus did it. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And it's how we will do this work as well. Remember our breath prayer from earlier? Jesus, help. That's it. It's it's sort of like saying, spirit, come. Spirit of Jesus, come and help. Empower this. Put strength and potency in every missional stride. When Jesus began his preaching ministry, those who knew him during his growing up years observed him then and were like, what's up with him? Like, that can't be Joseph's son. No way. That's got to be a different person when he was growing up as an adult. For all the years before that, before Jesus' adult ministry, Jesus wasn't preaching with power and authority. 
in those first 30 years of his life. Other than being a great kid, which he was totally a great kid, other than that, there was nothing remarkable about him. What happened? Something happened. The Spirit happened. The Holy Spirit happened. The Spirit came and gave life and strength to the words and actions of Jesus. If we want someone to look at us one day and be like, whoa, what happened to that guy? That's Randy's son, right? That can't be a son of the king. Oh, if you want that, it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit, tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit, who will empower our words and actions as we huddle each week and then break the huddle to scatter to the mission. Jesus is showing us here how our human lives ought to be lived, on mission with his peace, but not without the power of the Spirit, peace and spirit. Do you wonder why sometimes there's no power in your life at all? Wonder why there's nothing in your life that's maybe compelling to outsiders? Wondering why you never get any traction in your quiet time or any traction against that sin that you keep fighting with and keep losing? It may be because you're forgetting to plug in to the power source, the Holy Spirit of God. You keep neglecting to ask the Spirit to empower the mission of peace that you've been given by the Prince of Peace. Don't go proclaim the powerful gospel without the power of God. Don't proclaim a powerful gospel without the Spirit's, without the Holy Spirit's power, the power of God. God is prepared to do the impossible through you. I hope that intrigues you just a little bit, but only through the power of his spirit. Jesus is showing us that our lives and words can preach with such authority that we proclaim with power, liberty to the captives, sight to the spiritually blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And we can do this in such a way that people say, man, what happened to that guy? The spirit, the spirit. Uh, well, then, when the world sees us and they say, what happened to that guy, we'll be able to say, ah, it's not me. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the Holy Spirit of God. And they'll be a little bit intrigued. And by God's grace, they'll want to know a little bit more. And we'll be able to tell them a little bit more about Jesus and what he's done for them. Friends, if you want to be effective in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, you must be filled with the Spirit. Uh, how was Jesus filled with the Spirit? He stole away numerous times throughout his ministry career. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we see him powering up and asking the Spirit for help. It's as simple as that, breath prayers, and stealing away for longer periods of time. We need to, we need to pray and, and beg God by his Spirit to work in us and through us. Uh, they don't know it out there, but Abington needs us. They, needs us. they need us to be spirit-filled people. They need us to live spirit-empowered lives, lives on mission, lives that are marked by peace, lives marked by the realization that death is conquered, so what is there to fear? So they mock us a little bit. We will live forever. Who cares, right? Let's pray for courage. Let us pray for fruit. Let us engage in the mission and watch the amazing things that God, by his spirit, will do through you. Let us not stay cloistered in our holy huddle. Let us gather weekly to scatter. Listen, it took my teammate like 25 yards to forget his message at our huddle. Each of us are probably about 25 yards from our cars right now, okay? Let us not forget our marching orders in the 25 yards between here and our cars. Don't forget it between here and there. And don't assume that someone else is going to take what was heard today and they're going to carry it out. Don't assume that. Let's all eat the elephant one bite at a time. 
all right? If you need some fresh ideas for what to do next, if you're like, oh, I just feel a little overwhelmed not knowing what to do, uh, you can go to our website and you can find a sermon on uh, James 127 where we talked about some really practical ways uh, to do this together as a church. Uh, there's a sermon there by Will, I think it's Will, on James 2, 1 to 7, or the entire Eating with Jesus series. There's eight or nine sermons on there that talk a lot about how to do this in just really practical ways that, that won't stretch outside of your normal, normal rhythms of life. Finally, here's a few, I don't know, anecdotal points of application, and we'll go. First, expect opposition. There is spiritual war going on out there, and don't doubt it. Satan is on the prowl to keep this very thing from happening. This is hard work, but it's worthy work. It won't come naturally to us. It's why we desperately need the supernatural empowering of the Spirit. Expect opposition. Second, set some goals. Let me encourage you uh, to seek to have six gospel conversations before 2024. Can we strive for that? That is one a month before the next year. Six gospel conversations with unbelievers before 2024. The best way that I've found to do this, to speak peace to people, is over a meal. Uh, I've done this a number of times, and I would encourage you to do it too. Again, the Eating with Jesus series would be a helpful maybe prompt for you in that if you want to get on the website and get some helps with that. Third, beware of defeatism. Defeatism. Eugene Peterson once wrote, the Christian life is about long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. We're not after quick fixes here. We don't expect the church to double in size overnight. It's not even anything at all about how big our church gets at all. It's about faithfulness to Jesus and wanting to bring the world in on something amazing that we've experienced ourselves. The Christian life mission is about long obedience in the same direction. There really is a tree, so keep painting that tree with long obedience in the same direction. Fourth and finally, remember, there is no plan B, all right? It's this. The church is God's plan to bring the gospel of peace to a world in need. We can't afford to assume it's someone else's role. It's ours, collectively and individually. So have a prayerful eye toward gospel encounters. Can you do that? Can we do that? Have a prayerful eye toward gospel encounters. We are more than holy huddlers. We are scattered sent ones. Because after all, Jesus is bigger than Sundays. Go paint a leaf this week, all right? We're going to pray now. Can't remember who's praying, but somebody's going to come pray for us. Will's going to pray for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Spirit of the living God that you have made a way for us to have peace with God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you offer us peace through your work with the Father. And I pray that as we rest in that peace, as we take that peace into our hearts, and we seek your face, that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, that you would give us the power to carry out this mission, to carry out the purposes of God in this world. As your church, Lord, help us to be committed in our lives every day to the Great Commission. Lord, I pray that you would move us by your spirit and empower us in ways that we can't even think of or imagine 
to reach this dying world with the grace and the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. amen.